You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 19th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... Bloomberg's candidacy is very much about saying, I can win, I've got more money than Trump, I'm the only real billionaire in this race, and that could prove to be a winning message. The billionaire Mike Bloomberg enters the race to the White House, but can he convince enough Democrats to vote for him? We also examine the economic impact of coronavirus and talk about how Brexit is affecting culture and the arts. Plus... The recently completed fashion weeks in London and New York were noticeably muted due to the absence of Chinese and South Korean visitors. Milan's Fashion Week gets underway, but as our fashion editor explains, it's not all smooth sailing. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. Joining me here in the studio are Jonathan Fenby, Chairman of China Research and Director at T.S. Lombard, and Peter Goodman, Global Economics Correspondent for The New York Times and a former resident of Shanghai. Gentlemen, with your combined specialities of China and economics, you're expertly placed to give us your perspective on the coronavirus or COVID-19. Now, there are more than 75,000 known cases and over 2,000 deaths so far, most of them in China's Hubei province. Well, as well as the very obvious impact on health, the economic fallout is beginning to be felt further afield. Peter, the company we keep hearing about is Apple. How has the disease affected the sales forecast? Well, uh, very significantly, they've had to go and downgrade their earnings uh, for for the upcoming quarter. And that's because China is both an enormous market for Apple products, uh, like many multinational companies, uh, like, for instance, you know, General Motors, the American automaker, which now sells more cars in China than in the United States. Uh, Apple sells an awful lot of iPhones and, and laptop computers and, and iPads to Chinese people. Uh, it's a country of 1.4 billion people. That's a lot of consumer power. It is also the place where Apple products are made. So when there is an epidemic like this coronavirus that keeps people home, and, and of course, you know, this virus hit uh, during the Lunar New Year, which is an enormous time of uh, both consumption and uh, family visiting. Uh, migrant workers empty out of industrial areas. They go home to their families in the countryside. Uh, and the virus has kept them there longer. Factories have been shut down. This has been the government's attempt to prevent the spread. For companies like Apple, that's meant uh, that even when the holiday ends and they're supposed to be back to producing goods, they can't because the workers are still home uh, in their villages. And it also means to come back to this consumer thing uh, that even in in the cities where Chinese people are normally during the Lunar New Year going out to malls and uh, buying gifts for one another, people are, are are just staying home trying not to get sick. And I mean, this is having a, a knock on effect on the global market. Very much so. I mean, China is now uh, something like 13 percent of all of global trade. Uh, China is the source of one-third of all of the uh, economic growth in the global economy. So if Chinese consumers aren't spending money and Chinese factories aren't making goods, that's going to be felt very, very broadly. Japan, uh, Germany, the United States, really around the world. Mm. Jo- jo- uh, Jonathan, other mm. Asian countries are downgrading their growth prospects too. Yep. Where in particular is feeling the impact? Well, all countries basically follow on from what Peter was saying, which do 
business with China, and that is almost everybody, uh, certainly in East Asia, there, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, and, and Southeast Asia, uh, and so on. But it also stretches far more widely because uh, Peter was mentioning uh, American investment, American companies um, that now draw quite a large slice of their revenue uh, from selling in China, as do European com- companies. But also you have the whole supply chain and just-in-time manufacturing. And what this has shown, this virus, is how complex that that is, that you can open a factory, uh, but if the workers aren't there, there's no one to do the job. And currently, the latest figures are 35% of workers have returned to their factories, even if in some provinces, you know, twice that number of factories or percentage of factories uh, have opened. But uh, if you're turning out the goods, if you then you have to have the components uh, arriving. You've got to have the whole transport system set up and everything down to uh, the availability of plastic, uh, that hated product uh, these days, and cardboard to package the goods when you go out. So that there's, there's a tremendous uh, complexity in the supply chain, which really can be attacked at a lot of... Uh, junctures by the virus. Mm. I mean, we were hearing just uh, in terms of transport about how Land Rover is importing small, there must be small components in suitcases. Right. Yeah. I mean, to Jonathan's point, I mean, the global supply chain, this is the element that's both critically important and also so complicated that it's unknown even to the companies who are involved Mm. in it. I mean, after uh, the the uh, Fukushima disaster in Japan in 2012, it took months to understand that lots of companies who thought they weren't even exposed to Japanese factories woke up and discovered, well, actually, there's just one you know widget that we really need that's sure. only made in this one factory. And we may be able to get everything else that we require to assemble our product, but if we can't get that one thing, we're, we're out of business. And that's the sort of story that will undoubtedly pop up uh, around the world. And it's these sorts of worries that are now hitting confidence in Germany. Uh, Germany, uh, six months ago, we were worried about a possible recession. Things have been looking better in the last couple of months. Well, Germany's very exposed to the Chinese market. Germany sells uh, chemicals, uh, machinery uh, to industrial enterprises in China. And if, if Chinese factories are shut down, uh, that that's certainly going to hit uh, German companies. But but if the components and the materials that are required to make the things that German factories are making, often to then send back to China, can't be purchased from China, uh, you you have a problem. And that's the nature of capitalism today. Mm-hmm. And as Peter says, it's often just you know one or two small elements in this, which only China produces or which only China knows the Chinese workers and Chinese companies know how to fit into uh, a product to be exported. So you've got this whole global impact, undoubtedly, um, of the virus uh, going out of China and then coming into China companies which have depended on the Chinese consumer for growth and Chinese consumption was slowing in any case uh, are very much at risk now. And of course the EU budget coming up, Germany as you say, affected so that's definitely going to play into that. Um, I wonder if if February is basically then a lost month for China in terms of manufacturing, can the country cope? Well, the country can cope uh, in in that the country controls its own currency and uh, they're worried about debt. 
Uh, they're not. Uh, the government is not uh, eager to go and write a big check to stimulate the economy. But China has shown in the past, uh, if you go back to the 2008 financial crisis, uh, if if you go back to the SARS epidemic in 2002 to 2003, if there's a crisis, if there's a shock to the system, uh, the Chinese government understands that uh, at this point, uh, this is a, a society that is really communist in name only, and the Communist Party that still runs the show, uh, their legitimacy rests on their ability to uh, maintain and increase living standards. And if there's a threat to the industrial uh, apparatus and jobs are, are threatened, they're going to spend what it takes uh, to keep the economy going. Now, that is not to say that there isn't a problem in China. Uh, there most certainly is a problem, and economists are downgrading economic growth forecasts. And that does, as, as we've been discussing, have knock-on effects uh, for the globe. The question is, how much of what's not happening in China uh, this month, maybe next month too, will uh, bounce back once uh, things have returned to normal, once inevitably this this uh, epidemic is is maintained. In SARS, we saw China, China take a real hit in the early part of 2003, and by late 2003, growth had really bounced back uh, quite dramatically because, you know, if you're not making an iPhone today, you're still going to make an iPhone eventually. The problem is that the consumer economy is now such a large part of the Chinese economy that that doesn't really apply. Mm. The banquet that you were going to take yeah. your family to during the Lunar New Year that you skipped because you were staying home trying not to get sick, you're not going to have that one again. So there will certainly be a significant hit. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even if you can fix it domestically, I wonder about Belt and Road and how that's going to be affected, John. Well, that will be affected. Um, the Chinese government, I think, faces has faced, as it were, two big political problems here. The first was to show that it was capable of dealing with the virus uh, outbreak. And we saw a, a classic pattern here where local authorities are now in Wuhan are now being blamed. The central government has taken over. That means the central government basically has to deliver on the health and safety and security of citizens and be able to say uh, they've done that. But then, uh, as Peter says, that has an economic knock-on effect. You can see with the closure of uh, factories, of transport, the whole industrial uh, mechanism uh, seizing up and services which were already uh, growing less fast. They had been the motor of growth. They were growing less fast, uh, have been hit very hard indeed. So I would think we'll have some kind of stimulus package coming through. It's already started uh, in some ways. But th that then has, the, while it has political uh, effect of enabling the central government to claim we are back on the growth uh, path, it has the bad effect that you build up debt uh, and overexposure to infrastructure projects which has been one of the banes of China uh, for the last 10 or 12 years. Mm. Uh, Peter, just before we move on, sure. um, we're hearing the figures, 2,000 dead. Uh, right. Can we trust these figures? We should be skeptical about all numbers coming out of China. Uh, I mean, I you know I lived in China during the SARS epidemic, and I remember going with my colleagues in Shanghai to hospitals and discovering this was at a time when the municipal authorities were claiming there were no cases, though there were several hundred cases at that point public in Beijing and in Hong Kong, and it was very easy to go and discover that there were cases. And in, in Beijing, uh, quite famously, Chinese authorities were moving people around from hospital to hospital to 
to avoid detection by the World Health Organization when they were there doing an inspection. So there are reasons to be uh, distrustful. On the other hand, the central government is now very clearly committed to trying to stamp out uh, the, the, the epidemic. So at least the trajectory of the numbers tells us something. Jonathan Fenby and Peter Goodman. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabella with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Georgina. Hundreds of passengers who tested negative for coronavirus have begun leaving a cruise ship moored off Japan. The holidaymakers and crew have spent 14 days in quarantine because around 500 people on board the Diamond Princess have been infected by the virus. Boeing 737 MAX planes face yet another potential safety issue. It follows the revelation that debris has been found in the fuel tanks of several new planes which were in storage. The 737 MAX remains grounded after two fatal crashes. Boeing says the new problem is absolutely unacceptable. And India's Supreme Court has told the country's government to grant permanent positions to female officers in the army. The court's decision means that Indian women will get the same opportunities and benefits as their male colleagues, including ranks, promotions and pensions. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Carlotta. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin, here with Jonathan Fenby and Peter Goodman. Now, can we trust the figures in the latest US polls? Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, is way ahead in the numbers before the debate tonight. Now, this is the first time that Bloomberg joins the other candidates. And as we finally get to see him perform, do you think he can hang on to that lead, Jonathan? Yes, that would be my one word (laughs) answer to that. I think because uh, we know the disadvantages uh, that he brings uh, to his candidacy, but I think increasingly in a very divided, fractious and pretty unconvincing uh, democratic field, he appears to be the one who can beat Trump. And that's what the party will go for in the end, if they have any sense, and I hope they still do. Mm. Uh, uh, Peter, I mean, what can we expect from from him tonight, do you think? Well, it's been interesting. You know, he's certainly aware of the fact that the optics of a billionaire entering a race to take on a frontrunner, Bernie Sanders, who has uh, very uh, emphatically uh, refused to go and raise money at private uh, fundraisers, who's been running a campaign against billionaire power in American life, uh, wants a wealth tax, talks about economic inequality. That's been the Bernie Sanders uh, playbook through the course of his career. Uh, and, and the optics of a billionaire wading in to try to derail that candidacy uh, pose some problems for Bloomberg. Bloomberg's been pivoting to inequality himself. So suddenly he's embraced a, a financial transactions tax, which is uh, just despised by uh, his Wall Street uh, friends. Uh, he's And he's been talking about the need to uh, share the bounty of global capitalism. I think we'll hear more of that. I think mostly what we'll hear are uh, messages designed to convince the electorate that he will truly spend whatever it takes to win the race. And uh, this is sort of a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. On the one hand, you have the progressive wing that wants to take this uh, emergency, as they view it, uh, to to blow up the form of capitalism that's been governing America and rebuild a new and fairer version uh, against this pragmatic idea that, you know, no, the revolution can come later. Uh, we've got a fire uh, burning the house down. That, that's not a time to, to worry about uh, niceties like what kind of economic model we're running. We just need to win. 
and uh, and Bloomberg's candidacy is very much about saying I can win. I've got more money than Trump. I'm the only real billionaire uh, in in this race, and that 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 could prove to be a winning message. Yeah, two mm. New York billionaires with high name recognition. Well, except the, yeah. the Bloomberg joke still, you know, asked uh, what he thought Americans voters would think of a presidential election between two billionaires. He is said to have replied, "Who's the other one?" <laughs> yes, yeah. I wonder, though, how the other candidates will respond to him. I mean, as we heard earlier in that package, he was mayor of New York for 12 mm. years. Lots of things from that time that could come back to bite him. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. But I, I think the overwhelming thing in which he will be trying to get over is I can win. I am the one who can take on Trump and beat him. And Trump has changed the, the Trump years, of, I think, still looking at it from outside, have changed so much in America, including uh, in uh, electoral politics. Politics that I think he must have uh, an increasingly good chance. Mm. Peter, I wonder how Bloomberg's managed to propel himself to the top tier without being on the ballot in Iowa or New Hampshire. He won't be on the ballot in the Nevada caucus this weekend or the, the, the South Carolina primary right. on Saturday. So how, how has he got there? Uh, well, one word comes to mind, and that's money. Yeah. He spent uh, $400 million. In, in, this is uh, an amount of money, to put that in context, that's roughly what Barack Obama's campaign spent in the entire 2011-2012 election cycle uh, that that brought him re-election. So, you know, he's been uh, running uh, just carpet bombing uh, markets with television advertising. He bought a spot during the Super Bowl, which is, you know, the American Football Championship, which is the most watched uh, television program uh, in the United States. And uh, but also he's been conveyed. He, he has benefited from turmoil in the field. So there's been this sense that the Democratic field is full of candidates. N- none of them uh, can really uh, capture a clear, decisive lead. Sanders is the leader for the moment. He won in Iowa. He won in New Hampshire. He's well ahead in Nevada. Uh, but there's a feeling, and and uh, this is about to get tested, uh, that. He can only go so far. That the progressive wing, his support is really strong, but centrists and independents are are nervous uh, about his very expansive health care plans. He's for something called Medicare for all, which you know to Brits uh, may uh, simply sound like the National Health Service, but it involves wiping out private insurance, which makes a lot of uh, moderates uh, very very nervous. And uh, and the and the worry is that even if you like Sanders, he he might not be able to beat Trump because Trump will be able to uh, position him as as you know the businessman running against a socialist. Well, so along comes Bloomberg. Nobody can accuse Bloomberg of being a socialist. I mean, this is a guy who's worth sixty two billion U S dollars, who's uh, built his fortune on a financial services uh, data empire. Uh, and the the question is uh, whether the baggage from his time as mayor will prevent him from winning in the primary. I mean, the African-American vote is very important. As the mayor of New York, uh, Bloomberg uh, pursued this stop-and-frisk policy, which in- involved uh, having police officers uh, racially profile people, uh, targeting young black men uh, who, it turned out, it didn't help crime. They didn't catch uh, guilty people, uh, but he earned uh, the wrath of of black voters who saw this as, a, as an affront to civil liberties. And that's he's had to apologize for that. How will that play in a state like South Carolina? Uh, where uh, the black vote is very important. Mm. I suppose the bottom line is, can one buy an election? Can you buy an election? And also, 
uh, you know, in what kind of circumstances? I think the context is very important. The apparent decline of Joe Biden, for instance, leaves a lot of room open for uh, Bloomberg uh, in the middle. Um, the answer is, I suppose, uh, the Bloomberg's people would say, uh, it doesn't matter whether you can buy an election or not. The thing is to beat Donald Trump. Yeah. I wonder, next question, can one buy a trade agreement? So <laughs> Greece has demanded the return of the Elgin marbles as part of a free trade deal with the European Union. Now, Greece insists that the 5th century BC marbles were stolen by Lord Elgin, a British diplomat from the Parthenon Temple in Athens, over two 200 years ago. They say that was a blatant act of serial theft that was motivated by financial gain. Now, Jonathan, Greece has been after the return of the marbles ever since they were removed. It's always been. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Has Brexit, I wonder, emboldened Greece to push harder? Is this a symptom of of Britain's weakened international reputation? I think it it has has emboldened. Greece has seen an opportunity to bring up the Elgin marble play, if you like, again. Uh, Just as Spain will probably do so with Gibraltar. I think we're going to get a whole series of these one-issue elements coming in from individual EU countries as the negotiations drag on. Absolutely. It's just the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's entirely normal. I mean, you're playing to your domestic uh, audience in Greece, in Spain, wherever it is, um, and I'm sure the British can and will do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, Greece is supported in this by Cyprus and Italy, uh, and, and, and these countries also saying it is also to do with modern day art trafficking. London, right. London is a centre mm, for that. And sure. I wonder how it, this is likely to go down then within the, the cultural community here. Well, look, Britain is a former colonial power. Uh, when you're a colonial power, you send ships around the world, go look for things of value and bring some of them home. I mean, th- this is a, a historical reality. Uh, the current reality is that Britain is negotiating a trade agreement with the European Union. And Britain has chosen to walk away from a situation where it was completely integrated into the European single market. And there were effectively uh, no borders, custom checks, uh, other hindrances to trade. And Britain has walked away from that arrangement and now must negotiate its way uh, into some kind of trading arrangement with the 26 remaining members of the European Union uh, who are going to have their own ideas about uh, wh- what they'd like in exchange for the things that Britain wants. So so this sort of give and take, this is how it's going to be until there's a deal. And that, that could take years. Mm. Uh, just very quickly before we go, you're both published authors. You'll know the ins and outs of negotiating foreign <laughs> rights and selling into different territories. I mean, that's bound to be affected, isn't that's it? That's bound to be and all kinds of other ways. I mean, I was speaking to a friend uh, in the music business the other day and he reckoned that he may have to have negotiated tens of thousands of contracts over individual songs uh, and so on. You know, the, 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 uh, situate, the maze uh, of renegotiation could go on, certainly for the rest of my lifetime. Yeah, well, as long as we're still allowed to compete in Eurovision, though. Huh. Uh, you know, <laughs> Brexit has been described, uh, for good reason, as something like uh, trying to unmake an omelette. Uh, the linkages between Britain and the, and the rest of Europe are, we're going to be discovering issues that we haven't even thought about for years and years. Yes. Jonathan Femby and Peter Goodman, thank you. In a moment, our fashion editor looks back to Milan's Fashion Week. This is Monocle's House View. Stay tuned.
You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Finally today, Milan Fashion Week is underway. And while the industry's eyes are busy watching the brands on display, it's not all plain sailing. Here's Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters. Earlier this week, I received a WhatsApp message from an unusually glamorous sender, especially for a Monday morning. It was a voice recording from Alessandro Michele, the fated artistic director of Gucci, providing me, and no doubt the hundreds of other attendees it was sent to, information about the brand's forthcoming runway show. It's certainly a novel approach by the house famed for its playful take on luxury, and it offers an innovative, eco-friendly alternative to the ubiquitous paper invitations. It also brings a certain lightness to the opening day of proceedings at what will be a tense Milan Fashion Week. The recently completed Fashion Weeks in London and New York were noticeably muted due to the absence of Chinese and South Korean visitors. And in Milan, where the schedule is particularly packed with luxury heavyweights who have invested in expensive shows, brands are anxious about whether the whole thing will be worth it. The Chinese market represents nearly one-third of luxury spending worldwide and as much as 40% of the customer base for some of the big Italian brands. Yet it's estimated that 1,000 Chinese press and buyers have cancelled their European trips. But what's a brand to do? Cancel your show and you miss a key hit of press and social media buzz for the season. The show must go on, it seems, but it's a costly show to run. And that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Madeleine Pollard. Our studio managers were Jack Dewars and Louis Allen. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye. Goodbye.